you can tell this is my A3 invent. <laughs> I'm excited because when I started about seven and a half years ago when I went to the first reInvent, uh, I really never thought that I would see a musical instrument as one of the key launches, uh, nor did I think that there would be, uh, you know, so many machine learning launches around SageMaker. It's, it's amazing to see how things have evolved over the last few years, and I've had the privilege of kind of seeing it evolve firsthand. My name is Matt. I lead uh, a few initiatives, well-architected solutions, and some other stuff you'll hopefully hear about this year. And we're here today to talk about well-architected. So before we talk about well-architected, um, I just want to talk about where I stay when I am in Las Vegas, because all these exciting announcements, and you know, I want to go home and try Deep Composer, and you know, it can get a bit overwhelming at times. So to keep level, to keep my head straight, I, I get fresh air. I actually stay in an Airstream trailer, and I sit by the fire every night and breathe real non-casino air. And it's amazing. It really keeps me sane, um, so which is why you know, my voice doesn't sound so choppy, it's a little rough, but uh, it keeps me sane. But also, it's not always rock, red rocks and roses, because I woke up this morning, or I guess yesterday morning, and I had no hot water in my trailer. And so I did what any architect would do. I took out my phone, and I got a fix-it video. I found the, the hot water heater in the trailer, and I fixed it. And it felt amazing. A, because I had hot water so I could shower and not smell for you, um, but also because I was able to do it myself. So what I do at AWS is really focus on self-service, on enabling customers and partners to help other customers or help themselves uh, to get better results, better outcomes on AWS when it comes to building architectures. So when you think of well-architected, when you think of AWS solutions and some of the other uh, tooling and processes and services that we build, it's all about empowering customers to be able to fix issues themselves. It's also about, oops, sorry. It's also about giving you tooling for, oh, go back. It's also about giving you tooling for measuring what you're doing. So well-architected is about learning best practices so you can go out and fix things yourselves. But I think what a lot of people forget to understand with well-architected is that it's also about the ability to measure best practices. At Amazon, we are a data-driven company. And for example, you know, how many downloads I had of my uh, white papers for the pillars, uh, the percentage of test coverage we have in the code we write. We use metrics and KPIs all the time, every single day at Amazon. But what about things like operational excellence or security? How do you measure that? Are you 50% secure? Are you 60% secure? Are you 70% operationally excellent? That's a lot harder. And in fact, I was in a meeting just this morning uh, with a very large global systems integrator, and they were talking about this challenge as well. It's really hard to make the C-suite, your executives, all of our bosses, aware and appreciate of the effort required, the resources, and the state of your architecture across all dimensions. You know, it's fairly easy to measure reliability. It's up, it's down, uh, it, the latency, et cetera. But how do you present to your CIO, for example, that you have a strong operational cadence, that you have you know, not only good CI/CD, but everything around it is working well, that your security posture is excellent? How do you show them a picture and say, hey, give me the resources required and I'll get you from A to B. How do you define A and B? And that's what Well Architected helps you do. So we launched the tool at reInvent last year and what we learned from customers is not only is it a way for customers to learn best practices, but it also gives them a way to document what they're doing, to keep track of all the workloads in their enterprises, and most importantly, to track and programmatically approach how they address issues they discover and opportunities for improvement. And so actually one of the first features we came out with, people laughed, but it was to increase the size of the notes field. That was the number one customer request. Why? Because they were using it as a workload documentation tool along the journey of the evolution of their architecture. 
And I found that really interesting. So you're gonna see a lot more features come out in Well Architected around documentation and around measurement. And Cox Automotive is gonna come up today to talk about measurement as well, how they're using it to present a picture, a holistic picture of their cloud deployments and their deployments not limited to the cloud to their C-suite. So risk is a really good example of something that is kind of hard to define and hard to measure. But in Well Architected, you have a number of questions and you can, you know, either you do them or you don't, or you surface medium risk or high risk issues. So you can actually quantify risk. And we're finding that, you know, customers like CyberAgent in this, in this uh, example are developing a greater understanding of their risk profile, but also a language, a consistent language for articulating it. And it's, it's very powerful for architects. I mean, how many people have what they feel is, is enough resources to address their operational and security issues? How many people, you know, are gonna let a couple people go because they're fine, you know? Probably no hands, you know, it's very, <laughs> we all want more resources to address things like risk, but it's hard to articulate risk to the business sometimes, and Well Architected gives you a tool for that. So it's a mechanism for your cloud journey. We talk about mechanisms a lot, about AWS, it's not good intentions. You don't just read a white paper and forget about it. You read white paper, you use a tool to document what you're doing, and then you do something with that data. So you learn those best practices, you measure what you're doing, and then we provide you with improvement plans, prescriptive guidance. And in the seven and a half years that I've been at AWS, I'll tell you one thing. I've heard the same thing over and over. They say, listen, I love AWS, I love the cloud, I love deploying, but I've asked four people how to do things, and I got four different answers. <laughs> I hate that. I'm not sure which one to pick. And so, Matt, you know, which one should I use? Uh, customers want consistent prescriptive guidance, and that's another thing that Well Architected provides. So those improvement plans are consistent, and across your enterprise, if you have 400 AWS accounts, how do you go about improving things and fixing things in a consistent manner? So again, it's not just about learning, it's about measuring and about consistency across all of the sort of architectural choices, improvements, and issue remediation that you do across your business. What we found, especially in the last year when we released the tool publicly, we've been using it internally for years, but what we found is that customers who are using Well Architected and architects who adopt it are able to build and deploy faster because they're not putting out fires. If you do a review up front and then continuously, as you evolve your architecture, you get ahead of these issues. And you spend less time on swatting down issues as they pop up, so you can actually deploy faster. So we've actually seen release velocity accelerate and just gen overall velocity and better use of resources. One thing that I'm passionate about, I used to lead a large field team. I led the technical teams for, our, uh, for AWS for, for several years. And I remember they turned around and said, great job hiring all those people. Here's another X hundred people to hire. And it was a horrible day. I didn't want to hire all those people. I want to make them more efficient. And again, that's what Well Architected allows you to do. It allows you to streamline operations, get ahead of issues, get ahead of operational improvements, and do them. And of course, lowering and mitigating risks. Nobody wants to be in the news. I don't want to be in the news. You don't want to be in the news. Nobody wants to be in the news. And that's what Well Architected is all about, is lowering those risks so that things just run and your customers are happy. Making those informed decisions is also really important. I've heard this feedback over and over again is if you want to do something a certain way, say you want to containerize your application, or you want to become more cost efficient by making XYZ decisions, you need to be able to back those decisions up. And with Well Architected, we're effectively exposing how we do things internally. And you know, I, I think AWS is built pretty well. We have a pretty good reputation. And you can actually rest on that, the experience that we've gained in so many years of building AWS. The best practices that we have in Well Architected are the same ones that we use to document, measure our own services internally. 
So when someone challenges you and said, why did you do it this way? Well, you can say, well-architected. I followed the well-architected principles that is based on the experience of many customers over many years that we have aggregated and normalized and seen what has worked for customers, but also Amazon's own experience baked into the frameworks. So it allows you to make informed decisions and back them up. And that's what I want to do. I want to help back up your decisions so you can be successful, but also when challenged, have some ammo. And of course, learning AWS best practices. We found that Well Architected is a great tool for just learning. And the hands-on labs, I was just talking with Seth on the team earlier about the labs. He was literally publishing labs in real time from reInvent, updates to them with customer feedback. It was very customer obsessed. Um, we found this a great training vehicle for customers. So you see this, if anyone's done the SA Pro exam, I actually wrote the original one or part of it, so I'm sorry. <laughs> it's gotten a lot better since then. Um, but we've actually incorporated Well Architected into the exams, into the accreditations. It's really part of the fabric of how we train and certify people at AWS as well. So if you're not familiar with Well Architected, and, and I, we learned in the session yesterday that not everyone is, um, if you're new to it, we break things into five pillars. There's a tool in the console, but there's also frameworks, white papers, labs, et cetera. And we found that, I can't tell you the number of customers that said, no, no, but we have all these other qualifications. But in my experience talking to so many customers about Well Architected, most measurements of an architecture fall into one of these buckets. So operational excellence, security, reliability, performance efficiency, and cost optimization. And we allow you to learn and measure and improve your workload across those five dimensions. There's a review process, which is importantly continuous. There's this sort of misunderstanding sometimes that Well Architected is only for after you have built something. Successful customers use Well Architected upfront, in the middle, after, repeat. So consistent language, review process, and you do it across your entire technology portfolio. Again, customers who are successful, like Cox Automotive, as you will see, roll out well-architected across their entire suite of applications, across their entire portfolio, not limited to the cloud. One of the amazing learnings is that you have the option, if you use the tool, to say where you're doing this review. Is it AWS? Is it somewhere else? Let's just say a not insignificant percentage of reviews are done on workloads not on AWS. On-premises, somewhere else, great. We want you to be successful no matter where you run. I'm actually very happy about that stat. So last year, like I said at reInvent, we released the Well-Architected tool, and it, it allows you a secure, reliable place in the console, authenticated, where you can document your workloads. So before, we just had these white papers, and we continue to publish those white papers. A lot of customers want to integrate them into their own processes, so those, those won't go away. We're going to continue to publish white papers. We've started to release something called lenses, which are sp more specific white papers to address different workload types, like IoT or serverless. We're going to have a lot more lenses coming out soon, too. And we're gonna start doing more industry verticals. What we've learned from customers is well-architected is great as a general framework, but they want really specific guidelines around different types of workloads. And so we have some of those already, and there's gonna be a lot more coming soon. And I'd love to hear from you about what types of lenses you would like to see. In the tool right now, we have the general framework. And in the tool, you have questions, videos, best practices, all kind of baked in. So you can use it as a learning mechanism and also as a documentation mechanism. And this is important because how you build things is part of your IP, it's your business. And so we treat the data in your well-architected review as customer data, as confidential. No one can see it, including in AWS. So it's a safe, secure place for you to document your workload and as it evolves over time, and that's important. We've heard that feedback from customers. They wanna be able to document their workload, but they don't wanna air it out for everyone to see, so it's safely in the console. So this is a reliability pillar. I didn't do this uh, for you, Seth. <laughs> it's, a, it's a question. And you can see here you have a general question. We try to ask open-ended questions. 
And a lot of people say, why don't you have service-specific lenses? We do that on purpose. We want to reflect the reality of your workload and the different choices that are available to you across a number of different services, but what you're actually building, what business case you're addressing, not necessarily specific to the technical challenge. And then for each of them, we give you different best practices. So if you haven't checked out the well-architected tool in the console, please do. And if you haven't checked out the well-architected labs that are available in GitHub or the associated white papers, it's more than just um, a tool and it's more than just best practices. There's a lot going on. So like I said, we have videos, we have helpful glossary, we have frameworks, design principles, labs. The labs are so important. The best way to learn this stuff is to get hands-on with it. We bake it into our game days, into our certification. We have a well-architected partner program too, which is really important. And lastly, improvement plans. So best practices are great, but how to go about fixing them is so important. So we're gonna continue to iterate on this and add more improvement plans, just like we're adding more lenses. So more questions so you can identify what issues you have or what opportunities for improvement you have, but also more ways to fix those things. If you are struggling or don't have the resources to either do reviews or fix them, you can contact our professional services, but you can also, we have a great well-architected partner program. And what we find with the well-architected partners is not only are they good at doing reviews, but they're really good at, remedi at remediating the issues. And the issue remedia remediation rate associated with our well-architected partners is really high. So if you're interested in learning more about well-architected partners, come find me after the break. Um, but bottom line is well-architected is more than just a tool, it's more than just a framework. We've seen it over and over again, as you're gonna see with Cox Automotive, as a way to reduce costs. We are just talking to a customer yesterday who brought their costs from 200,000 down to 20,000 using well-architected. It's a way to make things more secure, more operationally efficient, to perform better. It really allows you to improve in every way and learn while you're doing it and to measure what you're doing so that you can have a picture of your architecture for the first time and measure things like risk, measure things like security, measure things like operational excellence. So what we're gonna do now is hear from Cox Automotive and Chris and Jean. Thankfully you're here and really appreciate them being uh, with us today. And they're gonna talk about their journey of mapping well-architected back into their enterprise and their workloads. So you can see a real example of how it is A, help move the needle, secure resources, and really make their solutions on AWS successful. So thanks. Thank you, Matt. Thanks. Here you go. I'll take clicker first. All right. Good morning. Thanks, uh, thanks for coming out. My name's Chris Dillon. I'm responsible for the uh, architecture and cloud enablement functions at Cox Automotive. Um, they're really focused on kind of uh, maintaining the ongoing uh, modernization and overall health of our product platforms. Uh, good morning, my name is Gene Mahon, and I'm part of engineering operations at Cox Automotive. And we focus on developing practices that drive quality, efficiency, and continuous improvement across our product engineering teams. So uh, to understand uh, our journey with Well-Architected, it's gonna help a little bit to understand a little bit about Cox Automotive. We're uh, one of the largest uh, automotive companies that probably most of you have never heard of. Uh, but we sit behind and provide a lot of services that power the wholesale and retail uh, ecosystem uh, of automotive in North America uh, and abroad. So if you were a dealer, which is the majority of our customers, you might acquire inventory for your uh, lot at one of our uh, marketplaces, either a digital marketplace or a physical auction. Um, you might ship that inventory uh, using our logistic services to your lot. You might underwrite the inventory with one of our, uh, with our lender, actually. So we're one of the biggest banks in the business 
but not for consumer loans, for dealers. So dealers actually you know, finance the inventory on their lots. Um, then you might advertise the, uh, the inventory on Auto Trader or Kelly Blue Book. Those are brands that probably folks here have heard of. About 70% of consumers who are in the market will go to one of those sites to look for a vehicle. Um, and, uh, and then when a consumer comes into your store, you might use one of our CRM systems. We have software as a service that, that provide CRM, dealer management, inventory pricing management, decisioning around when should I, uh, how should I price and when should I liquidate. So anyways, that whole uh, life cycle of a vehicle. And you can understand, we're not just brick and mortar or software as a service or digital business, we're all of these things. And we've grown up through a series of acquisitions, as, as you might imagine. Um, for 10 years, we've been highly acquisitive. And in some cases, the companies that we bought were also on their own acquisition streaks. And so that left us with a lot of diversity in our environment. Um, we had everything, this is sort of about three years ago, everything from AS400 to cloud native, uh, lots of different ways of delivering software from uh, kind of you know, waterfall to lean agile, lean startup you know, type of approaches, everything in between. And yet we had a vision for this integrated ecosystem of products for our dealers. And we knew that to achieve that and deliver on what we wanted to do, um, we needed to have, uh, we needed to go through a transformation. We needed to modernize our platforms and we needed to get to um, some common architectures. And so we decided uh, to go all in on AWS as our cloud provider. Um, we started building all new software on AWS and we started migrating our existing workloads. Uh, and that was, again, about three years ago. Now we've got almost half of, half of our workloads are running on AWS with the rest on-prem. Um, but it was at that beginning, right as we started to move workloads there and started to build AWS uh, on AWS that our journey with Well Architected began. And I'll let Gene tell you a little bit about how we started. So our journey with Well Architected began, and you know when you start something new and you do it quickly, you know you always run the risk of not doing it very well and under delivering on quality. And Amazon had introduced us to the Well Architected framework and the Well Architected review as a way to manage the quality of our systems that were running in the cloud. Uh, we didn't know that much about the framework, and we knew less about the review process. So we asked Amazon for help. Um, their solution arcs led most of our initial reviews. And during that time, uh, we took an opportunity to get educated. So we learned about the framework. We learned about the process. We learned how to facilitate an effective review. And we also learned about the key services that were aligned to each of the pillars. Um, and we, those key services that we would consider implementing within our systems to drive improvements. And while we were doing these reviews, we were participating. Our own cloud architects were sitting in and shadowing because um, we wanted to drive accountability and we wanted to take steps towards being more self-reliant. You know, when you start something new, it's a good idea to start small. We have a large, complex product technology portfolio. 
It's comprised of thousands of components, which together roll up into hundreds of major um, platforms or workloads. So we decided to target only those systems that would be already running, that were already running on AWS, or that were migrating to support our data center consolidation plans. And what we started to see early on was we had a consistency challenge. So we developed, to drive at this, we developed a, a simple scoring rubric. It was a red, yellow, green scoring system that would allow us to highlight where our biggest risks were and where our key opportunities for improvement were, and also allowed us to highlight some areas that we were already generally well architected. And we used this scoring to serve as a measure of consistency across all of our teams. And most importantly, it was a way that we could establish a definition of what good looked like. And this rubric became, it was simple, yet it was a compelling way for us to convey where those risks and opportunities were. So as we were learning more and more about the framework, uh, there was more and more that we really liked. Uh, first, it was really philosophically aligned with the way we were thinking about engineering. We wanted to distribute capabilities into our teams as opposed to an approach where knowledge was centralized in a single group. The other thing that we really liked was the framework is focused on principles rather than specific solutions. Now you use the framework to evaluate specific solutions, but the true power is in a general set of principles and best practices that we could leverage broadly across all of our teams. The other thing that we liked was it was builder oriented. One of the things we really knew we had to do to make our teams successful was to put expertise within our groups so we could drive their success, help them raise the bar, and help us get better. We also wanted a way to ensure that the expectations that we were setting for ourselves, you know, what good engineering meant, that we could um, measure and um, ensure that, that was, we were going to get those outcomes. And lastly, what we found was um, the framework translated really nicely into business terms. So we could talk about good engineering, and we could talk about why that mattered, and we could really talk about it in terms of the value that it was bringing to our business. And that becomes very apparent in the next leg of our journey. And the next leg of our journey uh, started actually the beginning of this year. So I remember it really well. It was actually the first week of January 2019. And I was where maybe many of you find yourselves the first week of January or early in the quarter, the beginning of a year, at a leadership offsite. Right, so we were, it was the product leadership team for Cox Automotive was gathered for uh, almost a week, and we were um, just getting ready for the year, talking about objectives, talking about what was going to be important. We had just reorganized, so thinking about how we were going to operate in a slightly different model. And one of the things we had a session on was this desire to build uh, a balanced scorecard. Uh, we gathered around a whiteboard and we said, all right, for every one of our products that we have, uh, we want to put on one piece of paper uh, a view that shows uh, business concerns, like what's the revenue, the revenue potential, the profitability, the growth opportunity, and so forth. 
product management concerns like uh, do we have um, good connectivity to the customer? How are we competitively positioned? Uh, what are our churn rates and you know, that sort of thing? How sticky are we as a product? And then uh, technology concerns. So uh, what is our technical debt situation and what kind of, uh, how mature are our teams? That sort of thing. And we wanted to, to create kind of a heat map that we could put in front of our executive team. Um, and it would be you know, kind of the first time that they've seen everything on one piece of paper in this kind of format. And it would help direct kind of where we were investing our dollars in the future. Um, and so we, you know, we got charged up about that. We said, yes, this is what we're going to do. We've got a quarter. Let's do it in the first quarter. We'll get this done in Q1. And then we can you know, see what happens next. And so we came away. And I remember sitting down with my, uh, with my boss and saying, all right, cool. Uh, we've got to go measure all of this stuff. In particular, these two areas that we had identified, technology risk and engineering maturity. And we need to do that across all of our products, of which there are hundreds. Uh, how are we going to do that? And uh, you know, do we, uh, does Gartner have a framework? Do we need to hire consultants? Or uh, you, know, uh, you can see where this question's going. We decided, oh, actually, we can probably use well-architected. So we had been using well-architected uh, from, uh, you know, from a cloud perspective for our cloud workloads. And, but if we, you, you rearrange the pillars and you think of them in these categories, we decided, you know, when we talk about technology risk, what are we really talking about? We're talking about the reliability of the platform and its, um, its security posture. And when we talk about engineering maturity, we're talking about these three other areas. And if you go and, and if you're familiar with the well-architected um, pillars and the content around them, they have as much to do with how things are architected as how the teams operate and behave, which is really important because it's part of what we wanted to reflect. So we decided, hey, this is what we'll do. We will use well-architected and, and build on the success that we've had within our cloud program, and we'll scale it out to the rest of the enterprise. And uh, I remember going to Gene and saying, hey, Gene, Good news. You know that thing we're doing with the cloud and we've, we've done uh, you know, so far over the past year, now we're going to scale that out to the rest of the platforms, all 250 of them. We've got like you know, two months to, to get it done. Let me, know, uh, let me know how that goes. Let me know when we're done. And, uh, and so I passed the baton to him. Yes, and I was very thankful. <laughs> um, you know, Chris was very enthusiastic and you can imagine that I was going to be the real downer here. Um, you know, what was really great, though, was that we, we had um, the alignment now from our leadership team. You know, we wanted to go and do this, and that was really exciting. My, um, my only concern, really, was our readiness internally. You know, could we execute on this broad goal? And here's why. You know, to this point, uh, we had 15 teams that were engaged. Um, we had a couple of dozen of our platforms that had been assessed. You know, we were doing it consistently, but very small scale. And my most, the thing that concerned me the most was that we were, we hadn't built this muscle yet. We were very reliant on AWS. And what Chris was asking for, you know, to scale this across 350 engineering teams, to do this across our entire product technology portfolio. We were talking about consistency at scale. But I was thinking about this, and I was reflecting on you know, where we were headed. And I thought, 
you know, maybe uh, an aggressive goal is exactly what we need to uh, get our organization more self-reliant. Self you know, it was the catalyst maybe for, for doing this. So we had the top-down alignment. We had a broad goal now, an assertive goal, an aggressive goal. And um, we needed one more thing. And so Chris and I talked about it and we said, you know, we need a way to equip our teams so we can execute on this. And uh, what we decided was we needed a toolkit. So that's what we did. We, we, built, we built a toolkit that our teams could use and it was really two simple things. First, it was a set of guidelines for how we would score all of our platforms, calling out the major risks and opportunities and really thinking about what needed to be remediated. And then rolling that up into a view that our businesses could understand. So this is an example of what that looked like. We did this for each one of our delivery streams. If you're familiar with the scaled agile framework, the terminology they use is a value stream. Same concept here, but it's the way we organize our product groups and the way our work is done. And then the second part of our toolkit was a common way for us to represent um, a roadmap to a healthy level. So this was our roadmap or our path to green. So, you know, identifying, uh, Matt mentioned earlier, you know, that part of the well-architected tool, there's an improvement plan, and that's what this was. You know, how do you, how would, what's the work that we will do to move the needle to get us to the state that we want to be? So we rolled this out with a key message to our engineering teams that this was our, our opportunity as an engineering organization to reflect back to our business the important engineering work that we knew needed to be done and to express that in terms of business value. I mean, this really wasn't a technology problem. It was a, it was a leadership problem that we faced. And as architects, we needed to influence the business and know what to ask for. So we put that together and we executed. And the scorecard came together, uh, which you see a, a, a mock-up of here. So it was the first time, uh, as I mentioned, it would be that we had all of our products um, laid out with kind of the, this set of dimensions side by side. And again, we grew through acquisition. So you can imagine our C-suite is made up of uh, folks who grew up in different parts of the organization um, and might be familiar with the part that they, were, uh, that they grew up in, but not with other parts as we've acquired them. Um, and so this was really important to put all on one page. And this was actually presented uh, in May of this year to our, to our executive team. And, uh, and it's generated a lot of really good conversations. You know, one of the, one of the things that it highlighted for folks is uh, something that we know um, as engineers very well, which is sometimes you can make one good business decision at a time um, and apply it to your engineering practices, and then the context changes, and uh, suddenly what was good is not as good as it was. The example being, if you're a uh, you know, startup mode uh, type company and you're growing quickly, you might focus all of your resource on feature delivery and customer acquisition and not worry as much about the resiliency of 
your product because you don't have customers who would care if it fell over yet. You know what I mean? So you, you might delay those kinds of concerns to a later date. Um, but then your context might change. Like you might get acquired by uh, you know, a great big company like Cox Automotive and suddenly the risk that's being run um, is much greater because you're risking the reputation of a much larger company. Um, so it's those kinds of things that we're able to tease out and tell the stories uh, around when we, when we put this together and then put it in front of our executive team. Um, the other thing that was really good about it is that it has created this taxonomy for us to have conversations about uh, gaining incremental investment because actually the well-architected pillars, as much as they are things that uh, we as engineers understand and like to talk about, they're actually things that uh, a CFO can understand and like to talk about as well. Um, so the things that we call uh, technical risk, security, and reliability, when we present these to our you know, business stakeholders, we don't talk about it in terms of uh, you know, DevSecOps or failover. We talk about it in terms of reputational risk. Um, we want to keep our, uh, ourselves and our customers off the front page of the paper. We want to earn the trust to, um, to be their provider. And then these are the things that we have to do to do so. So turning them into business concerns and not just technical ones. Um, the, other, uh, uh, the other three pillars, the ones that we uh, call engineering maturity, if you think about it, these are things that actually you can build a positive ROI business case around because they are things that either uh, cause product to be delivered more quickly um, or allow you to deliver product more quickly, uh, you know, increasing revenue, or reduce the cost of, of your delivery. Uh, so we actually uh, use these categories in both cases, both on the risk side as well as engineering maturity side, to bring forward separate business cases this year requesting incremental investment uh, and got it. There was a team, um, for example, that, that supports one of our products uh, that had just sort of, um, we had not invested in those teams' capabilities in terms of, for example, CICD and quality management and so forth. We were able to get some additional investment for that team to bring in some partners to help upskill the teams and, and mature their practices. And it really came as a direct result of putting that initial um, scorecard in front of our executives and saying, hey, here's where we stand in some of these areas. So, um, so it's been really successful in terms of a, as a business tool. It's also been really successful as an uh, engineering tool. Our, our teams really like it. And so these are just a couple of different quotes from team members. Um, this one talking about the fact that, uh, what I was just talking about actually, that, that it, it is really helpful to frame business cases um, for their business partners. Uh, the other thing that teams like about it is that it's not a big heavy, you know, framework, you know, enterprise architecture framework like a, like a Zachman or something like that. I mean, it's, we're talking about five pillars, but they do nicely scale kind of up and down. So you can take uh, one of the pillars and you can look at an individual component, you know, a very specific workload, all right, how does this work? Is it cost optimized and so forth? And you can score it. And then um, you can scale that up and, and think about, all right, well, what about this set of components that makes up a workload or the set of workloads that makes up a product platform? Uh, that was part of the red, yellow, green rubric that, um, that Gene was talking about that, that we built around it was sort of to how do we assess that as you sort of move, move your way up? Because the, the scorecard that I was showing you, each one of those line items is, is, um, is, is a pretty high level. It would be like, you know, 
autotrader.com is a line item. But you could double click on that and drill down into each one of the components and understand its disposition. So we've, um, we, I'm, we've now taken you about halfway through the year. We've established uh, some pretty good momentum with this. We've, we've scored all of our platforms and uh, we didn't want it to be a one and done type of exercise. So I think uh, that's the next part of our journey. So we wanted to capitalize on this momentum, as Chris mentioned. Um, you know, from an engineering operations perspective, we're always thinking about continuous improvement, you know, how we can raise the bar. And continuous improvement, you know, requires discipline. It requires care and feeding. But this was our opportunity to really drive this into our existing processes. We didn't want this event to be a one-time exercise that happened in 2019, and then as an organization, we forgot about it. So to operationalize this, we drove it into our quarterly planning process. So on a quarterly basis, our teams are evaluating their platforms and looking for ways to move the needle further, looking for opportunities for improvement. And that work is being captured in our product in our product engineering backlogs. It's really important. And that work is being scrutinized and prioritized against other product feature requests. And then once we're complete, we're reporting and we're analyzing on the results. We want to make sure we're getting the outcomes that we want to achieve. So one of the benefits of this quarterly planning, we've been an Agile shop for many years, and this quarterly cycle has been working very effectively for us. We wanted to take advantage of that. It's got a built-in feedback loop for what's working and what isn't, and it just made sense that we would tie into it. And here's an example of a report that we use that really shows the progress of our work. We, we took advantage of the fact that every, all of our product engineering teams are documenting or capturing their work in a, in a central system, which is great. We established a unique tagging strategy within that system so we could identify this work and pull it into a report and do some analysis on it. So teams then can also capture their work the way they've been doing. So whether it's an epic or a feature or a story, we're only requiring that they tag it appropriately. And then we can see you know, where we're moving the needle and if we're not moving the needle. So one of the things that we know is that when we fail to deliver on a product feature, when we fail to make that commitment, it's a, it's a big deal within our organization. It's an engineering commitment to the business, and we take those very seriously. So we wanted the same to be true of our architecture work. We wanted to make sure that we're moving the needle, and in the cases where we're not, where we have challenges, we can see that and we can dig in a little deeper better understand whether it's a capacity or a capability issue. You know, we believe this is really important because we believe that well-architected systems really increases the likelihood that we'll be successful as a business. So we've made a lot of progress to this point. We feel like we've laid a great foundation for how we're using well-architected within our organization. And we actually feel like we're just still at the start. We have so much more that we have planned
to accomplish going forward? Uh, and actually, before we go off of that last slide, I, I want to make a comment on it. Okay. So, because um, this is just a nugget, sort of a lesson learned for us that was really important. Remember the, the toolkit that Gene showed earlier, and there were two parts. There was like an assessment, and then there was a, um, a, a roadmap. So part of, our, part of the thing, and this is sort of a lesson learned for us that I, I want to emphasize is, as you're doing an assessment, um, you're also surfacing work that can be done to, to improve the posture. And for us, it was very important, like, get that into the system, get it into the backlog. Whether it's prioritized or not, just get it in, record it, so that your product uh, management team and so forth can see it, make it visible, um, and then we can start fighting for priority. So that's what, that's what um, that report is. Uh, we're going to continue to operationalize. We've sort of talked to you through uh, this year. In 2020, we want to institutionalize, well-architected even further. Um, so that means building some things, more things into our tools uh, so that teams don't have to fill out PowerPoint anymore to represent you know, what their disposition is, but rather it's in the system. Um, so we're working on tools to do that. Um, we are thinking about Cox Automotive-specific uh, guidelines for well-architected. So we want to inject some specific standards that we have um, for our own systems that might be above and beyond or might just be um, unique to, to our environment. Security tools that we have and so forth where we want to, we want to ensure that we're reflecting uh, you know, appropriate adoption and so forth. So that's, that's one of the items we'll be improving. Um, another one is scoring consistency. So I'll definitely say that you know, we, we did this really quickly. And like Gene said earlier, whenever you do something fast, you have a, you know, there's a chance you might not do it well. Um, one of the areas that we didn't do that well that we can improve on is just um, what defines a red, a yellow, and a green in our rubric? You know, what, what does that mean? And we have a really wide diversity of workloads. So if you're in an AS400 context, you know, how, how do you understand what constitutes red, yellow, green? Um, so we want to get a little bit crisper on that. Um, another thing is, when I mentioned tooling integration here, it's a different kind than I was talking about before. Uh, something like, for example, the security pillar, where you can go and, and fill out uh, a well-architected survey and do a well-architected review, um, but you probably also have some empirical data on your security posture. You probably are running security scans on your workloads, so you may know about security vulnerabilities that are documented through those tools. So that's one of the things we want to do is, is integrate that kind of data. Another uh, source of data would be uh, like outage, outage reporting or you know, various kinds of monitoring. You may fill out, a, again, a survey that says that you're doing all of the right things from a resiliency perspective, but does do the metrics bear that out? So we're thinking about how to bring those kinds of data together for our engineers in a more integrated way. Um, and then the last thing is we're just going to continue to use this as a taxonomy with our business. I mean, it is so much healthier a conversation to talk about, hey, we have, um, we have a, uh, an issue in cost optimization, or we have opportunity in cost optimization of this platform than to say, well, we've got technical debt. CFOs don't want to hear about technical debt, but they're willing to talk about, well, you know, it's a, it's a security vulnerability that we need to remediate. So we've, we've found this to be like a really good um, 
translator for what we typically would just, you know, end up talking about as technical debt. And it really puts good tools in the hands of our engineers. Because, um, you know, often as engineers, we know the work that needs to be done to improve the posture of our system. If we could just get the business to give us the resources to do it. And, uh, and so I think Well Architected has been kind of a, a tool that's allowed us to have better business conversations, as well as architectural and engineering ones. Um, so that is our story. Hopefully that has given you uh, a nugget or two. Um, we are going to be hanging around. Matt's going to come up, and we're happy to entertain any questions that you've got. It's a small enough room that you can just shout it out. We'll repeat the question, and then, uh, and then we'll do our best to answer. And there's one right there. Hey. Good question. So one important thing was that we, we, took, we took all that information to the top of the house and actually got our executive team to say this is important. Uh, and in, in one case, specifically this year, uh, we got dollars kind of appropriated specifically for remediation of risks, and now you can't spend it on anything else. And you, you, know, you product owner, product manager, are going to be accountable back to the CFO for whether you remediated it. So that was one thing, because I agree, like as you get further down, closer to, you know, kind of the, the day in, day out, it can be, it, it, those trade-offs can, can take on a different tone. And that's really why it was important for us to bring them to the top of the house and, and sort of set the table there. Other questions? All right, one right there. Yeah. Okay, good. So the question was, and Gene, I'll let you answer this. Mm -hmm. uh, the question was uh, how we basically, how that rubric works. I think it's a little bit more detail on the rubric across red, yellow, green, and, and how we use it to score such a diverse set of applications, right? Do you want to comment on that a little bit? Yeah, I'll comment on that. You know, we, we have, um, so Chris's architecture leadership team, they were the catalyst for really kind of driving how we would do these assessments. And so the rubric was a way for us to say to them, listen, if, when you think about how you're gonna do this scoring, think about it in terms of um, if you had an opportunity to get investment, to really get something done here, you know, how would you do that? So you need to kind of frame the issue in, in, in those terms. So as, if, you, if, we're, if we're gonna report on something that's red, we want to make sure that it's the most, it's the highest priority. It's something that if you were going to argue for it, um, you're going to really make your case and try to influence that group to, um, to get that done. I'll add one other piece to that, which is it's, it's e the rubric is easier the further down in the stack you go, right? So if you're like looking at a particular um, component, then you could say, well, if you've got between, you know, one and two issues in this category, then that's a yellow, and if you've got three to four, you know, that sort of a thing. Pretty easy, just count the, the items. 
as you go further up and you say, all right, now let me aggregate this set of components that you know, supports a, a particular product and how will I reflect that overall, there's some, there's some judgment that's required. And um, like Gene said, the way that our organization is set up, there's kind of, there are architecture leaders who are responsible for reporting on the posture of the systems at that higher level. And there's some judgment call made for sure in terms of, all right, I've got five pieces here, one's red, the others are green, does that make me yellow? Or is that red thing so red, you know, or so important as a dependency that it makes really the whole platform red? And that's just, you know, to Gene's point, you have to be able to make an argument for it. Yeah, and one final comment about that too. Our architects are concerned about this question because when they, they would like us to have consistency across all of our teams. So one of the things we're thinking about uh, doing this year actually is to try to calibrate those scores across teams. So the way we're thinking about doing that is bringing those groups together, facilitating a conversation about how did they come up with this score? How did you do it? Mm -hmm. How did we do it? And then try to, try to drive more objectivity into the process because, you know, to get this started, we wanted to be, we wanted this to be somewhat subjective, right? Mm -hmm. We wanted to move fast. Mm -hmm. There was a question, yeah. Along what dimension? Sorry, keep going. Uh, Got it. Okay, so to what degree has it applied? The question was um, around cost optimization, ensuring that we've got the most optimized setup. So one of the pillars is cost optimization. Um, so that's important because it basically highlights the fact that, hey, this is, this is now, especially in the cloud, this is an engineering uh, dimension, right? Now you can engineer around uh, cost in a way maybe that you couldn't in the past. Um, and by highlighting it and making it a, you know, a part of what good looks like is you have to be good in this area and the, the framework itself provides a lot of kind of the, um, the principles that say whether you're architected well from cost optimization. Um, when you're not and you're reflecting that back to the business, then it, it sort of puts you on the hook to start to generate improvements in that area. Um, and sets the expectation of the business that we can do so, which I think is a big part of the value of the cloud. So um, Kelly Blue Book, actually, uh, again, a consumer-facing uh, website, has, has actually had a lot of success in this area this year, where they've gone month over month, every month, um, reduced the cost of their, you know, their cloud bill. And they're all, you know, the whole thing is running um, in AWS now. So, um, so yeah, it's been, it's been really valuable in that regard, for sure. Yeah. I'll just add to that to yeah. say that you know, I talk a lot with our reps in the field, um, and AWS is an interesting field because we're focused you know, simultaneously on revenue and reducing revenue through cost optimization. And over, like overwhelmingly, the biggest piece of feedback I've had from well-architected reviews is uh, cost optimization, that they're seeing costs go down. And I know this because we have conversations about quota and how it's gonna impact it. Um, and you know, how, do you, how do you balance you know, always doing the right thing for the customer first, but then you know, justifying the, the quota that's going down effectively. So I have that conversation more than any other pillar. So as an effective tool for cost optimization, I mean, I see it in the field every day. That's good.
Who else? Yeah. The work itself getting it done? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Yeah. Yeah, got it. Okay. So a couple of a couple of thoughts. So one is the thing that I mentioned before, just that as you're doing a review, you're surfacing work that would be required to improve the posture. And I think that's really important. Whether you end up doing the work or not, it's, you're thinking about it right then. Get your engineers to translate that into, okay, so this, isn't, this is a problem. What's the feature, what's the story, what's the epic you would add to the backlog to improve that and just get it in the system right now as potential work? Then the question is, is there a business case to actually do it or not? Um, and that, I think, has to do with, uh, you know, your, where you are strategically with a given product. Um, there, you could have a product where, you know what, this has very few customers, or it's being sunset, or we're trying to get folks away from it, and so it's not worth making an investment in, for example, the CI/CD pipelines, or something like that, you know, that would improve your operational efficiency. Um, or it might be that, well, this is our, our long-term, you know, this is where we're banking on growth next year. So we really want it to be highly resilient and, and we want those teams to be really, really capable. And so it bears the investment to move from yellow to green, for example. So I think it's, it's kind of a case by case basis. I think um, uh, that, was, that was actually part of the genesis of putting the balanced scorecard together was to force a little bit of conversation about where should we be spending our dollars. Not necessarily because of the technology dimensions, but because of the product and business dimensions. You know, where's the growth opportunity? Should we be shifting resources around, you know, to better meet kind of where we are strategically? So I think it, it helped with that conversation. And the, yeah. just go ahead. The, um, I think while well architected, the framework itself is focused on principles, um, the, the improvement plans and the specifics around it do get to the service level. So for example, in cost optimization, we talked pretty specifically about spot instances, and that feedback has led to the lenses to, to a large degree because people wanted specific guidance on serverless, for example, or IoT service selection, which ones to use in different contexts to achieve the aims of the principles. So if you dig into the framework at the next level down and follow through with the improvement plans and the associated guidance on the right, right hand bar in the tool, for example, it does give service specific guidance and more prescriptive guidance so that it can be more easily translated into the work that Chris is describing. All right, there's still a bunch. So how about right here? Uh-huh, yeah, good question. Um, in putting it together, uh, not that much, um, but since we've gotten it off the ground, quite a lot, actually. So as I mentioned, in, in the, in the um, technical risk area, uh, we actually did get some investment kind of allocated and, and partitioned off to say, hey, this is work that we're, these are dollars we're gonna spend to move uh, reds to yellow and yellows to green in the in the um, technical risk you know area security and rely or reliability those two pillars and um, and so we actually have finance kind of you know helping ensure and govern that to make sure that these dollars that's where we're spending them uh, and that we're seeing the results that we expect 
Um, we also have folks you know, on, our, on our finance team who come to reInvent and you know, are, are aware of kind of the cost optimization opportunities, um, for sure. We've got, um, uh, as a part of our enablement team, we actually have like a cost optimization um, function there. It's not, it's not um, staffed by finance, but it's definitely you know, influenced by finance. All right, one here, and then there's one over here also. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, do you want to comment on that? How long, maybe start with like sort of a, the lowest level type of component review. So we have, we have two types of reviews. We, ha we have what we call a top-down review, which is more of a high level, where we're looking for, um, to really drive these investment conversations. The low-level reviews, uh, which require um, more engineers and more folks in the room, they typically take about three hours. And that's consistent find. with what we see across yeah. a lot of customers, about three hours for an in-depth review. Yeah. There's one right here, yeah. Trusted advisor. So well-architected, first of all, is at the workload level, whereas trusted advisor is at the account level. So if you look at reliability, for example, trusted advisor will sort of give you a, a signal. It'll say, hey, you know, we notice you're uh, deployed in one availability zone, but it doesn't guarantee that you're going to be uh, resilient if, you, if you're deployed in two, avail uh, two availability zones because it could be two independent workloads in each. It has no way of detecting that. So I think one of the power of well-architected is that it is defined at the workload. And today, well-architected well is largely manual process. And so, you know, there's, there's a built-in discovery. You need to self-report. Um, so that, whereas Trust Advisor scans as best as it can, but I think, you know, many of you in the room will know that automated discovery and, and certainly automated re remediation is exceptionally difficult, if not impossible today. And so uh, you're limited insofar as what you can do uh, to really, you know, for things like cost optimization, yeah, you can look for little tweaks, but if you're looking for substantial changes from X to a serverless workload, for example, it's not something you can scan for or automate with ease. So does that answer your question? All right, we have time for maybe one more question. Okay, right there. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, uh, so that's right. Scaled Agile Framework is what we use. You remember the acquisition story? So we had kind of all different manners of of delivery. Um, one of the early things we did, before we had even decided to start building on AWS, was to implement Scaled Agile. And uh, Scaled Agile Framework has been, we sort of did a lightweight version of it. It, um, it, it gave us kind of common roles and responsibilities across our teams. And that took, a, and put everybody on a common cadence. So that took a lot of friction out of, out of our processes and just allowed us to start steering the ship uh, more consistently. If we wanted to, for example, uh, go and say, hey, we're going to do these reviews, and then we're going to codify the results of the reviews in terms of work that needs to be done. Um, we wouldn't have had a way to estimate that work, how long is it going to take, you know, how are we going to report on it, and so forth, until we had implemented Scaled Agile Framework across all of our teams. And um, so it's been, that's been a huge benefit to us, for sure, especially given our scale, 350 teams across lots of different locations. So... Um, yeah, I definitely re recommend that. All right, I think that's all the time we have at this point. So thank you guys thanks so much. For, thanks for the engagement and the, the questions as well. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks.